This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the countdown to Brexit. As the October 31st deadline for the UK's withdrawal from the European Union approaches, it will have been more than 1,200 days since the referendum in 2016, which decided Brexit. And yet, there seems to have been little cleared up in that time not only for the UK, but also for the European Union, and even for the future of the transatlantic relationship with the United States. Thankfully, I can't think of anyone better to help us understand what's happening than my guest today. Zanny Mittenbedos is the editor-in-chief of The Economist, and I want to welcome you to Deep Dish. Thanks for being on. Great to be here. So before we talk about the specifics of what's going on right now, simple question. Why is this so hard? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a simple and uh, very profound question. I think the the answer is that in the referendum, um, the British were asked whether they wanted to leave the European Union, and the answer was yes, by fifty two to forty eight percent. But there would be there was no real discussion and no real clarity on what terms and how. And they had been promised in a campaign a lot of free lunches. Um, a lot of having your cake and eating it, as uh, people used to say of, of Boris Johnson. Um, and it had been essentially um, promised that this would be a, an easy thing to do, no big deal. And as the sort of aftermath, um, it became clear that this was incredibly complicated. We've been in the EU for 40 plus years. You know, we are very inter- inextricably linked economically, legally. It was not going to be an easy thing to do. And, and also a lot of the vote for leaving was a a vote of anger about all kinds of other things. And so translating this um, desire to leave in the referendum, the referendum result, into a concrete way of leaving, so a negotiated deal with the European Union on the terms of leaving, has proved incredibly difficult, partly because when you make trade-offs, and you have to make trade-offs, but you've promised to the British people that there's nothing difficult and it's, there's no, you know, they can have their cake and eat it. It's very hard to come to an agreement that can then get through Parliament. And the other reason is that it was a clash of two sort of components of democracy. The British, Britain is, as you know, a parliamentary system and Parliament is sovereign. But the referendum was very clearly a, a sort of direct democracy. And the decision in the referendum split the two main parties in, in the UK cleanly in, apart And so translating that referendum decision into a parliamentary majority for a particular type of Brexit has been immensely difficult, which is why we are where we are now. And one of the places that we are where we are now, and one of the things that's frequently talked about now, is a hard Brexit crashing out of Brexit, uh, deal or no deal, or some sort of negotiated departure. What's at stake between those two things? So just to give you a little bit of context for that, the way that the treaty which laid out how a country were it to want to leave the EU would leave, which, by the way, was written, that element of the treaty was written by a British diplomat who um, essentially was trying to write something that couldn't be done. (laughs) Uh, It it says that if if a country invokes Article 50, to use the particular article of that agreement, um, two years later, automatically, it is no longer a member of the European Union. So if there is no negotiated settlement for how this will be done, two years later, the clock ticks and you're out. So that's why we have the notion of a hard Brexit. A hard Brexit or crashing out is simply the end of the two years and we are legally no no longer a member. And it's actually now longer than two years because we've already had this extension. 
But what that would mean is if there is no uh, withdrawal agreement, no deal between Britain and the EU, that we would fall back on trading with the EU on what's called WTO terms, which is how any other country that has no trade deal with the EU trades with the EU. That's a huge change from being part of the integrated single market, which we are now, and would have very, very big um, economic consequences. And there's a huge amount of debate within the UK about just how bad the economic consequences would be. Certainly in the short term, there would be a huge amount of disruption, huge queues at the at customs borders, huge queues at Dover, as, as what is a very integrated single market where lorries come off, you know, come from under the Channel Tunnel and off ferries every few minutes to feed supply chains that do just-in-time delivery for all manner of, of UK manufacturing how much that would be implicated. So there's a lot of question about how big would the short term Because presumably, be. just for people to think about it, they now have to go through customs checks. The trucks yes. just can't go rolling yeah. off the ferries and into the factories. And there's, there's been, you know, some preparation, and I'm sure we're in a better position than we would have been, you know, even a few months ago for that. But it is taking, ripping apart a very, very integrated economic relationship. But then the other aspect of it, which I think people focus less on is, even if you get through that short-term disruption, you end up with an economy that is you know, no longer part of this integrated single market of 500 consumers. That will almost certain, and it is, it is impossible to rebuild links as deep as that with other trading partners. You know, there's a lot of talk of global Britain having trading links with the US, with building, building them up with other fast-growing parts of the world. But the reality is geography matters in trade, and we are in Europe, we're on the edge of continental Europe, and that is a huge market. So we are likely to be worse off than had we been in the single market. So there's the short-term disruption, there's the long-term economic consequences, and then there's also the question of, okay, we will have to negotiate some kind of a deal with the European Union, because they are our biggest trading partner and they're right next door. If we've left in a half in, in this hard Brexit crash-out, where all kinds of things that are, you know, the Irish border becomes a huge, it's already a huge issue. Um, and it's done in a very sort of negative environment. We're then going to be negotiating from a very weak position from the outside to try and create a, a, a new trade deal. And so people, and there are a lot of people in the UK who are quite understandably absolutely fed up with Brexit. It's, it's been this national psychodrama that has ripped the country apart. Lots of people want to put it behind them. But crashing out doesn't mean this is suddenly put behind us because we still have to negotiate a new relationship with the EU. So I'm, I'm of the view that there is no doubt that a, a crash out would be bad. The question is just how bad. And recently, Boris Johnson has actually brought a deal to the table. He said, you know, I've got the Johnson plan, um, a key feature of which is, is addressing the Irish issue, at least putting something on the table. Two questions. Kim, what's new about the Johnson plan? And is it a basis for a negotiated exit? Well, let's go one step back. There was already an agreement. There was a withdrawal agreement negotiated between Theresa May, the former prime minister, and the European Union, which essentially dealt with this very tricky problem of Ireland um, by having something called the Irish backstop. And the, re the problem of Ireland is that both the Europeans and the Brits have, are committed to upholding the Good Friday Agreement, which is essentially the agreement that ended the troubles in Northern Ireland, 
part of which is a commitment to a unified Irish economy and no border controls and, and essentially no border within Ireland. And the Good Friday Agreement was done sort of under the broad auspices of, of both the Republic of Ireland and Britain being in the EU. Both sides say they're committed to maintaining that. But Britain wants to leave the customs union and wants to leave the single market. That other things equal would mean you have to have customs checks. So there was this conundrum about how do you solve the Irish issue. And in the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May's government negotiated, it was essentially sort of fudged and kicked into the long grass by something called the Irish backstop, which said that until we'd worked out some technological means of dealing with it, we would stay in the single market, we would stay in the customs union. That was um, deemed unacceptable by a large part of the Tory party who said the Irish backstop had to go, the Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, which three times failed to get through Parliament, um, that was no basis for, for an agreement. So you know, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he said, we can't have the Irish backstop, we have to have, you know, that's not going to fly. So he's come back with this new proposal, which was, as you say, um, put forward quite recently, which when you look at it um, at first sight is just mind-bogglingly complicated. There is going to be a regulatory border between Ireland and Great Britain, so in the Irish Sea. There's going to be a customs border between Northern and Southern Ireland, but not at the border. There'll be no checks at the border. Presumably, they'll be sort of a few miles away. Uh, not surprisingly, this has gone down with some some considerable scepticism in Europe. And there's there's an interesting discussion now about whether this is an opening gambit from uh, the Prime Minister who will then negotiate more or whether it's basically he doesn't actually want to, want to do a deal and whether the Europeans, on the other hand, will you know, outright reject it. They don't want to do that because if they outright reject it, they could be seen to be the side that pushes Britain into a hard Brexit. So this this has all the elements of sort of, you know, kind of game theory, trying to understand what the other person wants. Um, but it's also, it's you know, the basic conundrum is very, very simple. If you want to have an open border between Northern and Southern Ireland, but the UK isn't in the single markets and the customs union, you have a problem. And there isn't unlimited time. We know there's the deadline of the 31st of October in which uh, there's supposed to be action. Plus there are a couple other Well, there's more wrinkles things, there. Right? Yeah. yeah, there are more wrinkles there. Right now, indeed, the deadline is the, the latest, the last extension that we had um, was to the 31st of October. Uh, and Prime Minister Johnson, you know, says it's we must get Brexit done by then, you know, do or die. He'd rather die in a ditch than not, not leave the European Union. There's a lot of very emotive um, talk and very emotive language being used on purpose, actually. Um, but as you know, uh, just a few weeks ago, Parliament um, passed a law which was, you know, resisted by the by the um, Johnson uh, government, but thanks to 20-odd Conservatives voting against their own government, for which they were then... Yeah, they lost no the whip in the jargon. Exactly, they were <laughs> in the jargon. They lost the whip and, and were effectively chucked out of the party. But as a result, Parliament passed what's called the Ben Law after Hillary Ben, who's the Labour sponsor of it, and that says that um, if the Europe, there has not been an agreement um, signed with the, or made with the European Union by I think it's the nineteenth of October, um, then by law the UK is required to ask for an extension. Uh, now, there is a huge amount of, you know, uh, gossiping and discussion in, in, in London right now about can the 
prime minister get around this? And this is, of course, a prime minister who was just recently um, you know, slapped down by the Supreme Court uh, for his suspending or proroguing in the jargon of parliament, which was deemed an illegal thing to do. In um, quite strong terms. In very strong terms. So there is, can he get around it? And the general view is that it's going to be quite hard for him to get around it. So I think it is likely that if there is no agreement with the European Union, the British government is going to have to, by law, ask for an extension. Now, whether Johnson finds a way, Prime Minister Johnson finds a way to, um, you know, have the cabinet secretary do it, not him, or make clear that he's very against this, he's being forced to, none of that's very clear. But I think as of now, the chances of us crashing out on the 31st are relatively low since there is a law in Britain that says that this the government is not allowed to do this. So let's run with that and see what <laughs> happens next. Your listeners so, must be already completely oh, confused because we are in London. Well, that's, that's reassuring. It's very helpful to have it explained. It's pretty clear so far. So, you know, basically the story you've told is the most likely path is negotiations don't lead anywhere. There's now a law been passed that says that the uh, that the government must ask for an extension with the EU. Sounds like you believe the EU would grant that extension if they were if they're asked. Is that right? Uh, at what point does the EU, you know, say well, the heck with this? Absolutely. Let's go through the sort of decision tree. Good. I think first first point is: is there an agreement with the EU? And it is still possible even now that there could be because it may be that Boris Johnson decides that he can move quite a long way from this um, you know, current offer he's put on the table, sufficient to convince the Europeans and still keep enough of his hard Brexiters on board to get it through to Parliament. To get through Parliament, yeah. I would say that is, um, I, think, I think the balance of probabilities is he couldn't, but it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's possible. So if that happens, tick, we have an agreement, we leave on October 31st with an agreement, Actually, nothing changes in the short term because there's a transition and this, you know, we then go on to spending months deciding, arguing about various sort of subsequent elements. But then the, the drama is over. If we, if there isn't an agreement, then the question is, can the prime minister find a way to not um, ask for an extension? I think legally this is unlikely. It's We've had so many, you know, rather like you on this side of the Atlantic, we've had so many things that didn't seem at all possible happening. I'm no longer saying nothing's, you know, it's impossible. So it could happen that he finds a way of doing that. I think unlikely. Most likely is he or the government is forced to ask for an extension. It is, of course, as you say, conceivable that the Europeans say no. It has to be a unanimous decision by the Europe, the other member countries, the other 27. Um, there are now sort of even stories about are the Brits secretly trying to do a deal with one of the other countries for them to say no? <laughs> In the end, I think it's very unlikely that they will um, veto another extension. And the reason is that everybody is – the most important thing is to avoid blame for the mess that will follow. And the Europeans do not want history to say they pushed Britain out and then it caused a complete mess. So I suspect that another extension would be granted very reluctantly. And certainly, you know, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is the most hard line and, and – and, and perfectly understandably, the Europeans are utterly fed up with the Brits. And I, you know, I, just as an aside, increasingly, you know, feel this whenever you, whenever I'm anywhere talking to anybody in Europe. I mean, I, you know, they get, what is the matter with your country? You've gone completely crazy. You know, we're absolutely fed up of this. And you can understand why people think that. But let's assume they allow an extension. So we get to October the 31st. There's another extension until January 31st. 
then they will say, for goodness sake, go and sort yourselves out. And I think the expectation is that there will, there will have to be a quote-unquote democratic event in Britain. And I think that's one of two things. It's either a second referendum or it's an election. The latter, I think, is much more likely, the election. But let me just talk about the second referendum. Yeah, please. The, the, the reason to have a second referendum is that it separates the decision of, of whether to leave the European Union or not from a broader decision of do you want the Conservatives or Labour or running the country. Um, so there may be, particularly in the Labour Party, enough people, because the Labour Party is not at all popular for reasons that we can go into, who may prefer to settle the second second. The, the referendum issue through or the, the, the Brexit issue through a referendum. And one could imagine a government of national unity um, whose sole purpose was to oversee a second referendum happening instead of an election. That would be very fiercely resisted by the Conservatives and by the, particularly by, by Johnson. It would be seen by many um, as kind of going against the will of the people in the first one. You know, we've actually long, the economists long argued that this is probably the cleanest way to to clear up this unbelievable constitutional mess that Britain is in. But that's that's definitely one possibility, and don't discount it that that we go in that direction. The other, which I think is m- probably still more likely, is that we have a general election, and we have a general election which um, the Conservatives under Boris Johnson run on a let's get Brexit done. You know. Well, ugh, crash out if we must, but, you know, we're just going to give the Europeans that, you know, this is the deal and take it or leave it or we crash out. Um, the If you look at the polls, Boris Johnson is actually doing relatively well. The Tories are firmly ahead of Labour. And they have to, to win that election. Um, they really have to appeal to a lot of the hard Brexiter types who currently um, still say they would vote for the Brexit party. And, and British politics just because this gets very complicated. British politics has traditionally been dominated, as you know, by the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. In in the last general election, those two parties together got over 80% of the vote. Very clearly a two-party system. At the moment, it's incredibly fragmented. The Tories are, depending on what poll you look at, somewhere around 32 33%. Labour is at about 23 around there. The Lib Dems nipping at their heels. The Lib Dems really planting themselves as the stay in, the remain party. They're on 22%. Brexit party has about 13, 14. And traditionally, British politics, because of our first past the post system, has really strengthened the two party system. But when you have parties really at the 30% threshold or below, the the certainties of a first-past-the-post system fall apart, and it's very hard to predict what would happen in that election. It could be that the Tories get an outright majority. It could also be, and I think this is quite likely, that we end up where we are today, with the Tories as the biggest party, but not with the majority. So we go through this whole drama, and we end up exactly where we are. And frankly, the, you know, the psychodrama continues. The, the whole issue is not solved. That's a pretty, um, <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty depressing um, narrative, and quite possible, right? It's the very problem possible. Is, is there hasn't been support in Parliament for any plan that could be agreeable in Europe, and you go through elections and end up essentially in the same yeah. place. And and you know, when you look around Europe, which countries, many countries in Europe have different electoral systems to the UK, but having you know protracted periods of political paralysis because the system simply can't reach a conclusion to do anything, everyone 
is against doing something, but no one is for doing anything concrete, is actually relatively common. And what's, you know, what's it on the positive spin is that we are we are living through an extraordinary period in British history. You know, my grandchildren will be writing essays at school about this in the same way that, you know, I was writing essays about what happened in the early 20th century. It's, it's a very extraordinary time. And many of the things, that, many of the attributes of British, the British political system that we have traditionally seen as great strengths, not having a written constitution, having an unwritten constitution that can evolve, having a system that is based on precedent and norms, not very much written down, um, a two-party system. All of these things uh, are being stressed and shaken up in a way that has certainly no parallel in my lifetime. And who knows where we end up from this? I mean, we could end up with the you know, dominance of the traditional two-party system broken. We could end up with the Conservative Party, which has, you know, is probably the world's most successful political party and has been the world's most successful political party by you know, changing its stripes as the, as the as society changes. Right now, it looks like it's becoming a sort of populist nationalist party. Um, do the other parties, you know, where, the centre has gone in Britain with the exception of the, the Lib Dems. So do you have some new centrist movement? Who knows? Um, but for a country that... No, for, for, for many decades, you had parties broken on, on socioeconomic lines, and now you have this big shock coming in in the form of the decision, the, 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 the question of whether to be in the European Union or not, which has split both parties down the middle. And so the party political system is coping with an, a sort of thunderbolt that's come from the outside in a unwritten constitutional framework. And the result is... All kinds of things that you could never have imagined happening are happening. And, and anyone, I think, who is, says they know where it's going to end is, is you know, deluding themselves. We have no idea where this is going to end. Let me take us out with a question built on that, which is so much is in play. What do you think our listeners should pay most attention to other than reading The Economist, which is a good thing to do. I do it every week. Um, but what should our listeners pay most attention to to understand how this is unfolding and, and what most likely results? So let me, let me put this in a broader context because I think one of the, one of the reactions many people have when they listen to this um, and, hear, see, and watch what's happening in Britain is a, is a sense of, you know, I thought the British were reasonably competent thought they had a kind of stable political system. They used to they run knew, an empire they, for all, for They used sakes. to run an empire. But even long after they did that, they played above their weight globally because they were right. pretty good at running things. And th my goodness, haven't they gone crazy? That is all true. But I actually think that it is no coincidence that there is there are very strong echoes of what's happening in the UK in this country. Different cast of characters, different details, worse in some ways, less bad in others. And actually, in other parts of Europe um, and around much of the world, we are seeing elements of this. And I think that suggests to me that it is not simply a series of isolated events happening for different reasons in different parts of the world. There is a common theme there. And, I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll hazard a guess yeah. um, to what that common theme is, which is that we are in the midst of um, three different sort of revolutions, if you will, three different very, very profound changes. One is a technological revolution on a par with and faster than the Industrial Revolution. You know, the computer 
IT revolution is a huge change in the way economies are functioning, and we're just in the early stages of it. We're also in the midst of a geopolitical shift globally. We've come to the end of the 20th century, which was very much certainly the second half of the American century, indisputed American dominance, America's sort of role as the leader of the free world. We're now moving into a century of a rising China and a rising authoritarian China. And thirdly, we're in in a kind of very big demographic transition. We've had obviously a, a big change in the role of women. If you look back over, you know, compare where we were half a century ago, big um, changes in other civil rights, much needed um, and, and very, you know, in many ways, very good and important steps forward, but which do make important segments of the population feel the world I grew up in is changing, you know, stop history, I want to get off. And you have different elements of that in different countries. But I think a large part of the or a part of the Brexit vote was people who saw a huge number of um, European immigrants coming into the UK and who thought this isn't the Britain that I know or want. Um, and you have similar elements of that in other parts of the world. And those three sets of changes, demographic, um, technological and geopolitical, are going to continue. And which makes me think that this is not just an isolated series of, of events. It's also... Uh, it's a period of turbulence, which isn't going to stop anytime soon. And for me, the most, the best parallel is, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, and which was obviously the, the last industrial revolution. And if you look at, you know, you look at the US, you look at the UK, you had a huge amount of social turmoil. You had political parties breaking up. What happened actually in UK party politics was very similar to what's happening now with tensions within the parties. You ended up with a very different kind of social contract. The role of the state was very different. But it, it took a long time and there was a, a huge amount of political turbulence, rise of socialism, all of that stuff. So that leads me to think that even when we put Brexit behind us, which at some point we will, the, the, the UK isn't going to go back to the status quo ex ante. The, the, the political firmament has shifted and is shifting. I think the same is true. Um, this is a whole new podcast, but right. the same is true we'll in this country. Back. The same is true in this country. So I guess I would leave um, uh, our listeners perhaps with a thought that complicated and in the weeds and frankly, you know, interesting to know about, but not that relevant to most people's lives as Brexit is. It is important, not because the UK itself is, you know, we're much less important than we think we are, but because it is a very powerful example of what happens when this sort of social, economic and political turbulence kind of comes together. So it's the kind of thing that in a different form is happening and could happen in other places. Well, Zanny Mitten Meadows, thank you so much for being on Deep Dish. It was a terrific conversation and uh, I appreciate you being here. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, please do me a favor, take a moment and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so that you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. 
As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. <laughs>